Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Gillian Jacobs stars with Paul Rust in the new Netflix comedy, Love. Before that, she played Britta in Community. So, in some ways, it's lucky that her time at Juilliard put her off from pursuing a career in classical theater. There is a kind of, I guess, acting school philosophy that you have to sort of reduce the student to a pile of mush and then reteach them everything they thought they knew about acting and build them up again in your image. So by the time they leave, they're supposed to be a reassembled actor, but now with a skill set that they didn't have when they came in. But I felt like they kind of forgot to build me back up and kind of left me a pile of mush. It's a bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to Gillian Jacobs about how she found her way into TV comedy. And we'll get some stories about the famously gonzo production process on the NBC show Community. How many other shows can say they start Monday morning not knowing what the script is or what the episode is about? And and yet, we've not had mutiny. <laughs> then later, I'll talk to restaurant critic Jonathan Gold. There's a new documentary about him called City of Gold. He wrote the definitive book on Los Angeles eateries and won a Pulitzer for his criticism. But just to be clear, that doesn't make him infallible. I started wars between um, Northern and Southern California burritos. <laughs> I, I, you know, I know you're from the Mission, but I think the, I think the Mission burrito is just a monstrosity. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, man. Come on, Jonathan Gold. <laughs> I used to love you. Plus, I'll tell you all about Sly and the Family Stone's best album. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Gillian Jacobs went to Juilliard to learn classical acting, Shakespeare and Chekhov and stuff like that. When she started to work, it was as lost young women in very serious roles, drug addicts, strippers, that kind of thing. Then she was cast in the sitcom community, and everything changed. Her new show, Love, just launched on Netflix. Here's a clip from the show. Gillian's character, Mickey, is having some trouble at work, and she calls her roommate, played by Claudia O'Doherty, to run through her options. Mickey, is everything all right? Yeah, totally. Uh, I just need to vent. Is now a bad time? Not at all. I'm flattered you called. What's up? How much money do you have? If I was unemployed for, like, six months, could you afford our rent? Oh. Uh, I was actually going to ask you for a little more time this month. My grandma hurt her hip, and she has dementia, and I've been sending her money, but she keeps losing the money, and she's been yelling at the nurses and accusing them of stealing it. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, it's fine. Um... I'm not going to lose this job. I'll make it work. That's the spirit. You'll make it work. Just I, like I do. Even when I'm... I spoke to Gillian Jacobs in 2013. Gillian Jacobs, it's really great to talk to you. Thank you for having me. So when you went to uh, Juilliard, did you think that you were going to spend the rest of your days playing repertory roles at... Uh, the Orient Shakespeare Festival or something like that? Yeah, the Guthrie Theater was my goal in life. Yeah, I thought that, I thought I was going to have a career in classical theater. And then, in part, I uh, had a horrible time at Juilliard, and that sort of broke my love of theater. And then also I, I realized I didn't want to be broke the rest of my life. And um, I, I realized later that they would only give us tickets to really bad plays that weren't doing well in New York. 
but it gave me this really <laughs> false impression that theater in New York was terrible <laughs> because everything I saw for a couple of years were the worst of New York theater. So and it was just because they couldn't sell tickets to those I that you later, got free tickets. I later realized that, that they were trying to fill the house for these plays that weren't selling well. But I just thought theater in New York was terrible. <laughs> so then my goals kind of shifted. So wait, so what did you think Juilliard was going to be like when you were 17 years old and auditioned? Well, I'd had such positive experiences as a kid in acting classes and the plays that I'd done that I thought it was just going to be a continuation of that where everyone thought I was great and <laughs> and um, I got good parts and I had a lot of friends because that's where all my friends were growing up were my acting classes and plays. And then it was, you know, your classical break you down to build you back up uh, theater I don't School. know what that is. I know what that is for football, but I don't know <laughs> what it is for classical theater. There is a kind of, I guess, acting school philosophy that you have to sort of reduce the student to a, a pile of mush and then reteach them everything they thought they knew about acting and build them up again in your image. So by the time they leave, they're supposed to be a reassembled actor, but now with a skill set that they didn't have when they came in. But I felt like they kind of forgot to build me back up and kind of left me a pile of mush. <laughs> give me give me an example of what you mean. Well, there used to be a probation system at Juilliard, which thankfully they've gotten rid of, where at the end of your first semester, sophomore year, they would put a bunch of yellow envelopes on this pushpin board. And if your name was on one of them, you knew you were on probation, which meant that you were eligible to be kicked out of the school. So I was one of the people that was on probation. And the first thing that happens is you go to the... What was it like to go up to a... It's terrible. It's terrible. You know, everybody kind of knows what that means. And your other classmates have probably seen that you're one of the flagged people. And... um you just sort of feel already like in that you're like a lower class citizen at the school. And then you sit in a circle with all your teachers and they go around one by one and tell you how you're failing in their class. And I remember my movement teacher told me that I, I did well for someone with no natural ability. But, you know, looking back now, I'm kind of glad that happened because this business is so brutal and unforgiving that having to face that earlier on maybe made auditioning less traumatic than it was for other people in my class. But yeah, it was <laughs> it certainly killed my love of theater for a while. So in the years between when you left school and Community started in 2009, you played, as I mentioned in the introduction, a bunch of really dark, intense yes. roles um, in both film and theater. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> was was that on purpose? Was that what you were was that you what you were going out for? Was that what someone was sending you out for? I was going out for everything that every other, you know, actress my age was going out for. But I think that there was some edge to me that I don't I don't know what it was. Um but I never got an ingenue part. I remember I went in for one audition. I can't remember what the movie was, but it was like a high school fighting movie. And I was going in to play the hot girl love interest. And uh, I was there with, like, you know, a lot of other young actresses and went in, did the scene. And the director says, you know who you remind me of? Christopher Walken. 
<laughs> and that's when I knew I was not going to get that part. And I think um, that was kind of the response to me auditioning for those types of roles was like, something's off here. This is not a natural fit. I never got any commercials either. I think I ate the food too angrily, perhaps, in the audition. <laughs> It's Bullseye. My guest is the actor Gillian Jacobs. She plays Mickey Dobbs in the new Netflix show Love. She made her name as Britta on Dan Harmon's sitcom Community. Beautiful and earnest, Britta might have been the perfect romantic lead, but Community wasn't that kind of show. Britta was over-earnest, a little oblivious, and always had to be right. Um, So in this clip, the episode is set in what I will describe as... A Glee-like world. (laughs) Um, And uh, the Glee Club has brainwashed the study group that's at the center of of the show community. And uh, the study group has agreed to be part of the Christmas pageant. So um, one of the characters, Abed, got a big solo. Uh, Britta, your character, Gillian, uh, is playing a a tree. A mute tree. A mute tree. (laughs) And um, Abed throws you into... Uh, the lead role at the very last second. So let's take a listen. Britta! Is this about regionals? I just talked to Corey, and he needs you to be the Mouse King instead of me. Me? But I'm supposed to be a mute tree. It's an emergency. This will help us get to regionals. I knew it! Wait, where are the lyrics? They're in your heart, Britta. Right! Britta's in this? I got a Christmas town for me. I got a Christmas town for a tree. No. She's ruining it. Christmas time. Me so Christmas, me so merry. Stop, stop, stop. What are you doing? Get off the stage. singing my heart song. Get off the stage and never sing again. You are the worst. Hey. You do not get to call Britta the worst. Mr. Rapson, I think it's fine. Now, Greendale is an all-inclusive school. Why don't we let Britta sing her awkward song? (laughs) Your face is literally in your hands. I don't think you're doing it for my benefit. (laughs) That's painful to listen to. (laughs) Yep, yep, they really tapped into my tone deafness, and if you watch the the episode, my inability to dance... (laughs) Uh-huh. Your character is, you know, blonde and uh, beautiful <laughs> and open-hearted and earnest. Yeah. But all of the character, your character is also consistently fails at almost everything and is kind of unpleasant. And in fact, all of the characters on the show frequently have genuine negative <laughs> personal characteristics. Yeah. Like not phony Maroney ones, no. not like... We really learned a lesson, but like they're actively abrasive sometimes. Yes. And yeah, I think that the thing that I like about her is that she does not let other people's negative opinion of her deter her in any way. You know, she does get her feelings hurt occasionally by them. Um, And she is now, at this point in the show, aware of how they see her. But she still will loudly proclaim her opinions until they make her stop. And I like that about her. (laughs) 
Do you feel like that's a little bit like you in your three and four of acting school? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I think it's more like me in junior high and elementary school. I remember my mom made me read that book, Reviving Ophelia. I don't know if you're a man, so you probably were not forced <laughs> to read that book. I was busy reading The Women Who Run With the Wolves. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But it was all it's this book about how girls, little girls start out as these very strong, opinionated, outspoken, creative creatures and then basically through puberty and society become quiet and shy and muted. And it's sort of like Britta never went through that phase and and I was very much that idealistic, outspoken, impassioned kid who was told to shut up by the rest of my peers. So maybe Britta has enabled me to get back in touch with that that outwardly goofy part of myself that maybe was more reserved for like close friends and family. I don't know if my bits are any good, but now I'm just throwing <laughs> them out there a little bit more. <laughs> Dan Harmon as um, is the creator of Community. And he had, along with Rob Schraub, done this thing called Channel 101, which was essentially a short video, competitive short video festival in New York and later Los Angeles, where um, comics and producers and stuff and directors would get together to make quote-unquote television series that were very short format. Um, and each week there would be a vote to see which television series would come back the next month and which television series would be canceled. And um, because of the pressures of that, it often led to these really sophisticated genre parodies because genre parody is a thing that you can generate in that context. And I think in a lot of ways, community became an extension of that, which is to say that he took this group of friends which is the thing that every sitcom is built on, and just started putting them into these worlds. Yeah. Every world you can think of almost at this point. What I wonder is what is it like for you as an actress to have these character relationships? And, you know, supposedly a sitcom is about the situation. Yeah. But when the situation is, oh, uh, this week there's parallel universes. (laughs) Well... The characters on the show always dive headfirst into whatever situation it is. It it takes zero convincing to get them fully on board to whatever adventure they're in every week. And it's kind of like that for us as a cast and crew where it's always overwhelming. It's always insane. And we always feel just excited to be doing it. Um, We shot another one a couple of weeks ago that is for season five. That's another huge episode. And you have a point at which you look around at these crazy costumes that you're in in a weird set that they've somehow thrown together in three days and we look at each other and say, this is our job. You know, and I and I think that kind of is reflected in the show itself and how the characters deal with the circumstance and, and um, it's kind of a, you know, I, I'm never going to have a job like it ever again. So... No matter how difficult it gets, being on and off the schedule, losing Dan, getting Dan back, try and stay grateful for that because I'm never going to have a job like this ever again. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're hearing my 2013 interview with Gillian Jacobs. She was one of the stars of the TV show Community, which ran for six seasons between 2009 and 2015. Jacobs' new show, Love, is available now on Netflix. It seems like over these years that Community has run... You know, it's now gotten to syndication, mm-hmm. which is the sort of the gold standard for a network sitcom. I mean, that's when you know that you have been a success. But it has been so consistently tortuous mm-hmm. at every 
point? I mean, it doesn't seem like there was any easy part of the process. No. No. I don't think there's been an easy day on community. Um, Has there been a time when you felt confident that you weren't canceled, for example? Oh, you know what? It's weird because actually our first season was the easiest. We got our back nine fairly quickly, and which is, you know, when you get a full season as a freshman show, that's a, a mark that you're doing well. Yeah, usually they order 13 episodes to go with the pilot, and then the back nine is the makes it 22, which yes. is a full season of a sitcom. So we got that without much drama, and then we actually got picked up for our second season before we had stopped shooting the first season, which has never happened again. So it kind of gave us this bad precedent of thinking that it was going to go on like that. Um, but from there on out, no, it's there. We have not had an easy day. You know, I think it's interesting because once again, paralleling the show, the characters are complete underdogs at a terrible community college that is always threatened with extinction and being turned into like a parking lot for a rival community college. And we as a show are constantly fighting for our lives. We now have billboards for the first time and they're for syndication. Like, I don't know if I can fully communicate to people who don't work in TV how bizarre and unlikely that is that you would make it to syndication without ever having any promotion of the show. I mean, it's just truly a testament to our fans because we've never had, you know, that that easy road that you see these other shows that sort of like sail straight from success to success into syndication and just live on your TV five nights a week. It's like we've clawed our way there every step of the way. So um, Dan Harmon, the creator of the show, who's a brilliantly funny guy, has been a guest on this show, um, is notably ambitious Mm -hmm. and admittedly maybe not a world-class manager. (laughs) Yeah. And... um, uh, had a public feud with the highest profile star of the show, who's now no longer on the show, Chevy Chase. Mm-hmm. Um, the show has been, uh, you know, essentially teetering on the bridge of cancellation since the uh, production of season two began, basically. Correct. Um, what was the uh, Dan Harmon? I forgot to mention was fired from the show. Yes. Um, for all of the last season, then rehired for this season. Mm-hmm. What was it like to be trying to make a TV show at the point where stuff was so crazy that um, uh, Dan or Chevy Chase <laughs> might get fired from the show yeah. because of what was going on between the two of them? And from what I gather, like uh, Dan was just trying to make the most ambitious yeah. sitcom ever with the maybe possible exception of Arrested Development, yeah. but maybe not. Well. Dan, neither Dan or Chevy left the show because of what went on between the two of them, which I think has somehow come to be the public sort of understanding of what went down. I mean, there were a lot of factors that went, you know, and I'm probably not even privy to everything that went down. But it wasn't about the two of them fighting with each other. I think that they both, you know— they're they're very outspoken men, and so they yes, and they, they're both legitimate comedy geniuses yes, as well. Totally. I mean, genuine, certified. Yes. They have a right to be outspoken. Yeah. So that that wasn't really what was going on, but you know, the part where Dan was trying to make the most ambitious TV show of all time, that I am down for one hundred percent. I will work eighteen hour days and you know be so tired that I develop a facial twitch, and I, I will I will do that until I fall down from exhaustion because. I respect his ambition and artistic vision and 
talent so much that I will die on the field making the show for him. So that has never bothered me. You know, I think other people on other shows may not want to do the kind of hours that we do on our show. But that that's always been the part that I like the most about the show. Um, I like getting behind something that I believe in and I'll, I'll fight for it as long as you let me fight for it. Um, you know, at this point, I, I'm just looking forward to whoever writes the oral history of community because it will be a bestseller much like the SNL and ESPN book. We're going to we're gonna be on the New York Times bestseller list because of everything that has happened to the show in the course of our five now seasons. We'll hear the rest of my interview with Gillian Jacobs after a break. She'll share some of the most spectacular behind-the-scenes horror stories from Community. And this was a show that became kind of legendary for behind-the-scenes horror stories. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from HBO Now, the new way to stream all of HBO with no TV package required. Get all of the series, movies, docs, sports specials, and more. Download the HBO Now app on your favorite device to start your 30-day free trial instantly. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. For music, games, puzzles, and trivia of all sorts right now, check out Ask Me Another. Play along with a Seinfeld-themed version of Taboo, games of mysterious phenomena, and see what you know about some of the lesser-known puppets on Sesame Street. Ask Me Another is like trivia night, but a lot funnier. Play along now at npr.org slash podcasts, npr.org slash podcasts, and on the NPR One app. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're hearing my interview with Gillian Jacobs. She's one of the stars of Netflix's new comedy show, Love. I spoke to Jacobs in 2013, just as her old show, Community, was about to return for its fifth season. Tell me about one thing that happened in the show that... um, is will end up in that book. Oh God. Oh God. God. That I can say on the radio. Um We can bleep out swear words. <laughs> we can't get you unsued, but we can bleep we out swear. We get me unsued. Well I just remember when we were shooting the paintball uh, our second season two part paintball um the first half which was like a western and the second half was Star Wars um, and they hadn't written the second episode. Um, so we were doing the first part not knowing what the second part was going to be. We were setting up storylines that were then rewritten and having to go back and reshoot as we're shooting. You know, there wasn't a script. So we started out Monday with, I think, one scene. Um, I didn't know what the plot of the episode was. And I had a line or something about said something about Jeff to Troy or Troy to Jeff and someone was supposed to give me a look and they said, oh, there's going to be a love triangle in this episode where Jeff and Troy are fighting over you. I was like, okay. That got cut. We had to reshoot those whole episodes. We were shooting for so long that um, Yvette, who plays Shirley, one night slept for three hours in her trailer at work and then got up and kept shooting. She didn't even get to go home. Um I remember one time during those two weeks, I had a call time of midnight. I drove to work at midnight, (laughs) went through hair and makeup, and then was told to go home. (laughs) Um, And I'm trying to think of other things that happened in the shooting of that. Like, we at one point, Shirley and Britta are on a golf cart, and we're supposed to be, like, chasing down our enemies, firing paintballs. And the director wanted to, like, uh, Steven Soderbergh-style operate the camera 
and um, jumped on the the golf cart and broke it. So then the the grips were having to physically push the golf cart. So it's supposed to be a big action sequence and the golf cart is going one mile per hour and they're trying to figure out how to like fake the shooting so it looks like we're going really fast. Um, God, I don't know. Like the fact that that was probably the last time that we've been allowed to shoot outside that we're, we're a network television show that is not allowed to go on location or shoot outside. Since season three, we have shot everything indoors on our sound stages. Every set we've had, they have built on our sound stages. And maybe once or twice, there has been natural daylight. You're, on our you're TV describing show. like a sitcom apocalypse now situation. Well, we had a Heart of Darkness um, episode where the <laughs> dean makes a commercial for the show, and it basically is it's based on the shooting of Apocalypse. You know, the documentary about the shooting of Apocalypse Now. That it was one of probably our most meta episodes because it was we were making an episode about how we make the show about you know it was circling in on itself completely. <laughs> I mean, how many other shows can say they start Monday morning not knowing what the script is or what the episode is about? And and yet uh, we all have such faith in Dan that as confusing as it may be, I always feel like it's going to work out. Um, so we've not we've not had mutiny. <laughs> That's the uh, to me, the most amazing part about the entire community saga and drama <laughs> Isn't it not getting canceled and making it into syndication, um, you know, especially after it got a couple of years in and the people started to have a lot of skin in the game and there's a lot of potential money in syndication. Yeah. Like, well, here's hoping, you know. Yeah. It's the fact that Dan Harmon got fired and then rehired. Mm -hmm. What was it like on the first day when he came back and was like, hey, guys, remember when I got fired? <laughs> not fired anymore. Well, you know, that is in large part, I think to Joel McHale, Dan's return. Um, and, you know, Joel's just absolute belief in Dan and that Dan is the heart and soul of the show. Um, and uh, I don't know if I can say this, but the first episode of season five is called Repiloting. Um, so I definitely feel like, you know, Dan is always going to find a way to work in what's happening in real life into the show. And it's somehow is community. Of course he got fired and rehired, you know? Of course. Of course that's what happened. Um and I'm so grateful that it did. I it's I don't know. I it's so it's such an interesting thing to be on a show where other people in the industry kind of are like, "Oh, so you guys aren't coming back, huh? It's probably over." So are you are you doing pilots this year? You know, are you going out for things? Like people just talk to you in this pitying, <laughs> condescending, assumptive. They just always have assumed that we have already been canceled. It's so strange to be on a show where I feel like I have to tell fans of the show that we have not been canceled. Like <laughs> the people who like the show don't even know that we're not canceled. Um and and I just do have that little like underdog, you know, spark in me now that maybe Juilliard was trying to give me circling all the way back of like, you don't know. You, you really don't know. <laughs> we may run longer than any sitcom in TV history at this point. Like, who knows what we could do? We could 
you know, become an Internet show. Like, I, it's funny over the course of the show being on the air, like the rise of Netflix and everything. It seems viable at this point. People are making money off of it. Maybe we will exist in cyberspace only and and become the most profitable show of all time. I don't know. Holograms? Holograms, definitely. If Tupac can be a hologram, we can be a hologram. Well, Gillian, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was really great to get to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Gillian Jacobs. Her old show, Community, is in syndication and available to stream on Hulu. Jacobs now stars along with Paul Rust in a comedy show called Love. It's streaming now on Netflix. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Jonathan Gold, might be the most acclaimed restaurant critic in the United States. But he might not be the kind of restaurant critic you imagine when I say the most acclaimed restaurant critic in the United States. There's maybe a little bit of that French guy from Ratatouille in him. But along with the reviews of hoity-toity Spago-type restaurants, he's made his name covering the ethnic quilt that is Los Angeles. Driving some 20-something thousand miles every year, visiting some very culturally specific restaurants, and translating them for the often culturally insular Los Angeles audience. He was the first food writer to win a Pulitzer Prize. He was the first critic to be nominated for a National Magazine Award in criticism. And he's now the subject of a new documentary called City of Gold. I spoke to Jonathan Gold in 2011. Jonathan Gold, welcome to Bullseye. Glad to be here. Uh, it is a pleasure to have you. So you're from Los Angeles. You're from uh, South L.A., right? Right. I grew up um, near, uh, I guess, 63rd and Crenshaw. My dad spent his teenage years in Glendale. He grew up till he was like 13 or something like that in Kansas City, but then lived in Glendale. And um, and he's he's older than you are, Jonathan, but I remember him telling me one day about stealing his parents' car after they went to sleep and driving to the coast, um, which I guess, you know, this would have been 1960-ish, was not the longest drive. I mean, a 45-minute drive, maybe. But when he described it, it was as though he was going to Canada. You know what I mean? Like, it was like a whole different other... World and there's that sense in Los Angeles that I don't know I'm I'm from San Francisco I didn't feel in San Francisco of it being just a, a group of very individual worlds. It is that and it is not that. It's a, it's interesting that they both exist at the same time. For example, you can get in your car and you can drive for a hundred miles on surface streets and still basically be. In Los Angeles, I mean, the city names may change. It may be might become one of the small suburbs. You might be in Orange County. You might be, you know, up towards Santa Barbara. But it's basically culturally Los Angeles. It's the city. There's really no end to it. Unlike, for example, even New York City. I mean, there is a point where the city ends and the suburbs begin, and it's a clear demarcation. And here, that really doesn't exist. But on the other hand, because you're dealing with, you know, the vastness of the grid, you find that people tend to congregate in different ways than they might in a lot of the rest of the country. For example, in New York City, people entertain in restaurants because unless you're very rich, your apartment probably isn't great. 
Um, here we have backyards. I mean, even people who aren't super well off have backyards, and they might have swimming pools, and they have palm trees, and they barbecue. I mean, that, that's what the socializing is. And the insularity is bad in a lot of ways. It's bad for the city politic, I think. But in a way, it's very, very good for food. Because you will have enclaves of, say, you know, Koreans or Chinese or Mexicans, or even more specific, I mean, people from like one very specific region of China or one very specific region of Korea that have restaurants that are meant to satisfy them. Um, your origin story is an interesting one. Like the, the Los Angeles of the sixties when, and seventies, when you're growing up is this kind of classic Los Angeles that like one of the special things about Los Angeles is that this place is the place that invented in many ways, contemporary mass eating, like the themed food experience, the Taco Bell, the all of these things are like special Los Angeles, the Tex-Mex restaurant. Like these are all special Los Angeles-y things. And and often when you think of when when you go to like a Los Angeles thing from the 30s, um that has been the you know a Los Angeles institution, quote mm-hmm. unquote, it's often a very very early form of that. You know, it's a very early form of Chili's or whatever. It's not quite that simple um but there there is some truth to that there is a sense in which because hollywood and los angeles has been the source of so much mass culture in the united states that the los angeles accent is like the one accent in the country that doesn't actually read as an accent it that um that music that comes out of studios in L.A. doesn't read as having an L.A. sound. It just has a sound. That um, whereas you could open a um, a place called, you know, Joe's New York Bar and Grill, and you'd know what they would serve, or Joe's Chicago Hot Dogs, and you'd have an idea what would be on the menu. But you could open a restaurant someplace called, you know, Max's Los Angeles, and you'd have no idea what they would serve. Probably avocados. That's maybe, a, that's about as far as you could get, right? It maybe, would involve avocados. Maybe avocados. I mean, one of my favorite uh, food essays from the 30s is by S.J. Perlman, piece in The New Yorker that was, Farewell, My Lovely Avocado. <laughs> it's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the Pulitzer Prize-winning food critic Jonathan Gold. He now writes for the L.A. Times His book, Counterintelligence, is considered by many to be the definitive guide to Los Angeles. And yes, not just the definitive guide to the food of Los Angeles, which is its sole subject, but to the entire city. So you started on this project that is, I think, your your famous origin story, which is eating your way from one end of Pico Boulevard to the other. I I was working right after um, I finished college. I was working in a legal newspaper doing, you know, basic editing stuff. And bored out of my mind, I decided I would make my project to eat at every restaurant on Pico Boulevard. I I lived on Pico at the time, um, above a kosher butcher shop on um, 
Pico near Robertson. And Pico is, for people who don't live in Los Angeles, it's an east-west street that basically goes from one end of Los Angeles to the other. And it's sort of in the middle enough to be uh, in the middle, but it's also in the south enough to be genuinely um, sort of regular people e, including every kind of ethnicity that lives in Los Angeles. Yeah, I, I always think of it as LA's equivalent of like the tradesman's porch. Uh huh. <laughs> anyway, so you start you you were bored and you decided to work your way from one end of Pico to the other. Yeah, I started at a uh, the old Salvador Cafe, which was near where Pico dead ends into a Coca Cola bottling plant shaped like a thirty steamship, which I've always thought was astonishing. And I'd go and I'd eat every day. I would go off work and I'd go to the next restaurant and I'd sort of work my way down the street. And it was a, it was an education more than anything I've ever done. I think. You were a critic for Gourmet Magazine, based in New York, for a little while, right? Um, and you write about the toniest restaurants in Los Angeles sometimes as well. Mm-hmm. What do you like the most about fine dining restaurant food? Well, the food is freaking great, or at least it can be great. That it's where the most interesting and most innovative chefs wind up. They're the people who usually end up with the best raw materials. That they have the experience and the technique to be able to put it together in a way that's wonderful. The problem is that when the ambitions are high, the skill level and the imagination is often not as high as the ambition, and they fall flat on their face in a way that's just not going to happen in a taqueria. I mean, a taqueria that's awful will last three weeks. Right. (laughs) (laughs) There's plenty of places to get tacos. But when somebody is working on a really high level and they're pulling it off, I mean, it's it's, it's miraculous. I mean, they, they actually sort of like they can change your worldview with what's on a plate. So when when you get to eat a food that changes your worldview, um, what is it that keeps you going to taco places that, for all you know, might end up sucking? Well, may I say they don't all change my worldview. I mean, that's the thing. It's like I've, I'm bored out of my mind with a lot of sort of formal restaurant ritual. And, I mean, some of it's wonderful. Some of it is there just because it's always been there. And a lot of the restaurants are geared towards people who are, A, spectacularly wealthy, or, B, celebrating you know an anniversary divisible by five. And those people have different expectations from dinner than I might. It's not about the food. It's about something else. And I feel almost violated when I'm going into a place and I'm dropping $500 for dinner. And it's bad. I mean, really, it should be like pitchforks and torches time. I don't know why most (laughs) more people don't rise up against them. And some of the really spectacularly bad dishonest restaurants have been operating for decades and I don't know it I, I get I guess I guess it is what it is but I I like really good food and I like really good food wherever I find it and if I'm going to find it at Taqueria that's great and if I'm going to 
find it at you know the the newest molecular cuisine restaurant that's okay too i find that um in some ways the more i live in los angeles the less i venture forth into the world <laughs> um because just going places kind of exhausts me mm-hmm. um and i f- I feel bummed about that because I feel like I'm I'm missing out on so much of what Los Angeles has to offer. And I wonder how your life outside of eating has been affected by the fact that your job requires you to haul your ass to Norwalk or Orange or any of these dozens and dozens and dozens of otherwise, you know, places that you otherwise wouldn't make a point of, of visiting. It's in a lot of ways. It doesn't change that much. I mean, I I drive around during the day. I come home. I, I always cook my kids dinner before I go out. I mean, actually a lot of times like the number one qualification is, is the dinner that I cook for my kids that I'm leaving behind Better than <laughs> what, 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 what I have just driven 20 miles and paid $200 for. And actually, an obnoxiously high percentage of the time it is. How many days a week are you going out and eating for work? Um, probably six out of seven. And at, how, at least one meal. And how many meals out are are you usually eating in that time. I mean, if you're sometimes taking a bite of something and thinking that it's, it's not that great and just paying for it and leaving, are you, are you doubling up on, on meals in those days sometimes? Sometimes. I mean, sometimes I'll go to a lot of places. Um, I know that... Jonathan, you need to understand that while this does not seem like a big deal to you, I think to, uh, uh, there are probably, what, a dozen people in the world who eat the way that you do, so it is a big deal to me. Yeah, yeah, I, I can understand that. I know I figured out one time, I go to about four restaurants that I don't review for every restaurant that I do review. We'll have more from Jonathan Gold after a break. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Rhino Records with David Bowie's 4LP box set, Bowie at the Beeb, available for the first time on vinyl. Featuring select performances from Bowie's 1968 through 1972 BBC radio sessions, this 180-gram vinyl collection includes a never-before-released-in-the-U.S. rendition of Oh You Pretty Things, recorded with Mick Ronson, as well as a previously unreleased version of The Superman, performed by The Hype. Available now at Amazon. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. For music, games, puzzles, and trivia of all sorts right now, check out Ask Me Another. Play along with a Seinfeld-themed version of Taboo, games of mysterious phenomena, and see what you know about some of the lesser-known puppets on Sesame Street. Ask Me Another is like trivia night, but a lot funnier. Play along now at npr.org slash podcasts, npr.org slash podcasts, and on the NPR One app. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to the Pulitzer Prize-winning restaurant critic Jonathan Gold. He's the subject of a new documentary film, City of Gold. I spoke to Jonathan Gold in 2011. Do you still in, encounter foods that make you trepidatious? 
there are, yeah, I mean, I see terror in a plate of scrambled eggs for some reason. I'm just, <laughs> there's something about like a naked egg that just terrifies me. Are you cool with other forms of the egg? Uh, How about pickled eggs? How do you feel about pickled eggs? I no, I don't like pickled eggs. I don't like them boiled. I don't like them shirred. I don't. I cook eggs every single freaking day, <laughs> right? And it's like <laughs> I I cook more for my family. I cook more eggs than a short order cook. But I the the idea of eating one is it's hard. Do you have to adjust for your personal taste, or have you managed to broaden your palate to the point where? You can eat some weird Thai regional cuisine, and you don't have to worry about the fact that you're you just you're just not that into Thai cuttlefish. Um, I try very hard to get beyond that. I mean, I've told the story before, but there was in the um, '90s a, a a Taiwanese restaurant, and I went to. I just loathed it more than I've loathed any restaurant I've ever been to. I mean, the um, the soup was thickened. It was like okra. I mean, it was like gumbo plus, right? So it's like you take a spoon and it would like snap back into the bowl. <laughs> and it was flavored. There was a smokiness that wasn't like subtle and wonderful. It was like somebody had stubbed out a cigar in it. <laughs> and um, there was something called um, stinky tofu. I mean, that's what they call it, right? That's not the <laughs> euphemism. That's like... Uh, I think you're getting the idea. This was not my favorite place. Right. But I, but I looked around, and I said everybody was enjoying the food. People were well-dressed. It was a nice restaurant. It was clear that pe- that the chef was doing exactly what he meant to be doing, that he wasn't messing up, that this wasn't his fault. It was he was cooking the food exactly the way that he thought it should be cooked, and that the problem was that I was approaching it wrong. And I went back to that restaurant 17 times. 17? Yeah. That's a lot of times. Yeah. And I reviewed it, and I talked about all the things that put me off about it, but I think I was able to put it in context, that I was able to look at the food the way that it was meant to be looked at. That's hard. I mean, food is this thing that means who we are and where we're from. And it's 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 got to be hard to pick up someone else's, you know, cultural context enough to get something that's coming from someone who, until, you know, six years ago, lived 12,000 miles away. Yeah. I mean, some of it is incredibly difficult. Like... Um... There's a dish. I hate to bring Taiwan up again, but here we go. Um, it's a beef noodle soup, and in the San Gabriel Valley here, there are probably fifty places that serve it, and they all taste pretty freaking close to one another. But you can listen to two Taiwanese people arguing about which is better and why and what the exact uh, QQ of the noodle means as opposed to this one's slightly softer noodle as opposed to this one's funkier armpitty beef flavor as opposed to this one's sort of suave broth. And it's probably enough to start wars. And, and it's I know that I've nearly started wars over uh, burritos in my hometown, so I can relate. 
Oh yeah, I, I've, I've started wars between um, northern and southern California. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I know you're from the mission, but I think the I think the mission burrito is just a monstrosity. <laughs> oh no! Oh no! <laughs> There's really nothing you could tell me that would hurt me more than what you just said, Jonathan Gold. Oh, I'm sorry. I've I've, tr- I've tried them all. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything that you eat here in Los Angeles that makes you proud to be an Angelino in the way that eating a burrito makes me <laughs> proud to be from San Francisco? I don't know. I mean, I mean, Los Angeles has given many foods to the world. Pretty much all of the national fast food culture comes out of the greater LA area for better, for worse. You know, L.A. is where, you know, the, you know, obviously the Cobb salad was invented, the Caesar salad. But something that, that just, like, breathed Los Angeles that would be, um, I mean, just like you walk down a street here and in an ordinary block and you'll see, like, a, a half-timbered Tudor house and you'll see two Spanish haciendas, and you'll see an Italian villa, and you'll see, you know, a Cotswold cottage, and, and like all these, you know, wonderful kinds of like fantasy domestic architecture that come from all over the freaking world and just exist on one block because this is Los Angeles. And we make, it's a comfortable place for all of that. And as far as something that, a food that uniquely expresses the, um, the culture of L.A.? I don't know. Well, Jonathan Gold, I, I sure appreciate you talking to me on Bullseye. It's been great being here. Jonathan Gold, a food writer for the L.A. Times. His book, Counterintelligence, still in print after 15 years, is considered by many to be the definitive guide to Los Angeles, just Los Angeles in general, not even food in Los Angeles. He's the subject of a new documentary called City of Gold, which is in theaters next week. Every week, we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's the Outshot. A lot changed in a few years for Sly and the Family Stone. Originally, the band was Utopian. On their first record, Sly's brother and sister were there, but there was also this towering chick with an afro playing trumpet and white dudes on drums and sax. When they broke in 1968, it was with a single called Dance to the Music, which is one of the most thrilling chunks of joy that has ever been put on wax. Sly and the Family Stone were looking to create a brand new world. A year or two later, though, the utopian ideal was already starting to curdle. The band moved from the East Bay to Los Angeles. Sly bought a rock star house in the hills, and he started carrying a violin case full of drugs, literally a violin case full of drugs, and not psychedelics and pot either, like Coke and PCP. It was always within arm's reach. In fact, you weren't even allowed to bring your own stuff to Sly's house. You had to get it from Sly. 
He'd line people up in his study for a snort out of a little gold spoon. In 1969, Larry Graham's bass anchored a single that seemed to ride the line between hopeful and depressed. Thank You for Letting Me Be Myself came out just after everything started to turn south. The chorus is almost hopeful, but the verse describes a street fight. Thank you for the party, says Sly, but I could never stay. You can feel the isolation building. Just as the band and its creator turned inward into blow and angel dust, they made a masterpiece. It was going to be called Africa Talks to You. Drummer Greg Arico had quit. Larry Graham was close to doing the same. Sly holed up in the record plant in Sausalito with a drum machine and some friends, Bobby Womack, Billy Preston, Ike Turner, a bunch of girls. And he made explicit the implicit darkness of his last hit. The album ended up being called There's a Riot Going On. It was called that, of course, because there were riots going on. The lead single was the Family Stone's last huge hit, one of the loneliest songs about family that you'll ever hear sung. The intro from Sly's sister. isn't quite an angry album. It's an insular album. It's the place you go when you've lost faith in the rest of the world. So many of the songs are about retreating into oneself, retreating into chemicals. One of the few bright tunes on the album is about nodding out. funny. 
As soul turned into funk and the 1970s progressed, social protest in songs went from novel to cliché. The man, capital T, capital M, went from being kind of a useful idea to being sort of a joke. But unlike a lot of those records, Riot isn't about railing at the outside world. It's more about settling within yourself. By the 70s, Sly was a paranoid disaster area, missing concerts, always high. But there was still this note of hope in his music. This was the hope, that inside of us, somewhere, was peace. We were brave enough not to run away from it. Five years after Riot, Sly's career was pretty much over. Ten years afterwards, he had more or less disappeared. But he did make a perfect album before he got out of Dodge. That's my outshot. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Production fellow at Maximum Fun is Abadianex Perello. Production assistant is Christian Duenas. Senior producer is Colin Anderson. All of our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our thanks to the Go Team and their label Memphis Industries for our theme music. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, check out our sister show, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything great in popular culture, hosted by the comedian Guy Branham, who is as hilarious as he is insightful. This week, the gang are talking about aging in popular culture, both in terms of older performers and as consumers. Find Pop Rocket at MaximumFun.org or wherever you download podcasts. Hey, if you're listening to this this week on the radio in Chicago, it's because this is our first week on WBEZ. We are so excited to be on BEZ, and we are so grateful for the pickup. So thanks to them. And, and remember that this is a great time to support WBEZ or whatever your local station is. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.